This is Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. That's Truman Show, right? Good Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yeah, JT. Classic, hey guys. classic movie. Thank we you, gotta come. We got to come with another intro. You're just like sitting there mute. You just stare at the screen. I just... Okay. I don't. I mean, I feel like it's the same thing. It's like hey, I, I, want, I, I want you to. I want you to. I want you to start with a good morning Vietnam. Can you do that? No. Oh no. my gosh. <laughs> okay, we might have to have engineer Brad cut that out. Um, all right, JT, why don't you? Why don't you go ahead and do a do a dry run right now? You open up the episode. I'm not prayed up for this, Kyle. I'm not ready to do this. Oh no, 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 no! no. In, in season and out of season, JT. Yeah, Kyle spends um, hours in prayer before he does the intro. Yeah. yeah, yes. Well, before I hang out with the two of you, I should spend hours in prayer, though I do not. <laughs> and the Lord continues to test my patience. But here we are, like a dog returns to his vomit. I have returned to another episode of Known Faith, where I'm sure my appearance will be besmirched. I'll be compared to a, a pug, a bald baby, uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Kyle, Kyle, I got an idea. Why don't you tell people what you've been working on well, oh like well, well hold on we you and i you and i have something no, 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 we're working no, 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 okay. no, no. not just stuff we're working on that's, wait that's, what we got something oh, cooking yeah up something off, offline yeah, for i don't you. feel safe we've been we'll prepping we've been prepping our pitch we it takes a lot of work okay <laughs> we're getting it set before you're before we invite you in yeah yeah, yeah, well, yeah wait I'm, what are you talking about jt what's kyle I'm, working on talking about like the karate krav maga stuff you've been doing kyle <laughs> what? jiu-jitsu yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't, you know, this is, I don't want this to come across like I'm laying down an open challenge for our listeners, <laughs> but yes, I have been, I have been starting to do some boxing classes, Okay. some Muay Thai, some jujitsu classes. So I, I've got to be fun. honest, Kyle, Kyle sent me a video of him doing this and Kyle, you look like you know what you're doing. Hey man, I'm working hard at it. Um, I'm, I'm actually they, serious. Like you look like you, like you could be really good at it. I'm really proud of you. Thanks, man. It's been a lot of fun. Kyle, um, sending JT a video is an act of trust. That's really sweet. It's true. It's true. I um, That it was an act of trust or an act of insanity. I don't know. But uh, the guy that I told JT this, the guy in the video was being very kind with me. He's like an Egyptian semi-pro boxer who boxes out of this gym. And he was being very gentle with me. And I appreciate that. Uh, if you ever listen to the episode, Marat, thank you. Appreciate that, Nan. Thank you <laughs> for your generosity of spirit um, uh, that you did not kidney punch me 15 times. Uh, Do you guys actually that? hit each other hard? You, w w When you're sparring with somebody, you kind of tell them ahead of time, like, what level you want to go at. I typically will That's go... That's like Thai food. Yes. It's a lot like that <laughs> for real, though. It's a lot like that, though. Um, you're like, you're like, okay, hey, I want to go at this level or this level. Level three spicy. Yeah. And uh, anyways, so it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I still don't want to fight JT. But, you know, I think my odds against Jin would be pretty good. You know? Oh, hex, Yeah. <laughs> But listen, there's plenty of other ways we can fight JT that don't involve actually hitting him. Yeah. And for the record, but for the record, bald babies are my favorite. I wow. had four. That's the cutest kind of baby. And so it's said with affection. Now, especially, none of them had beards, but. Especially sure. bald baby pugs. <laughs> that's the dream uh that's the dream well uh, oh, look at the time look at the time today we're talking about good old father abraham he had many sons oh, i am one of them and so are you so let's just praise the lord left or, hand or, right hand 
or are we sons of Abraham? Who knows? Um, we're going to find out today on this episode, so stay tuned. Uh, to do that, we're going to jump into Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Last episode, we had a great discussion with Dr. Michael Kruger on sin, the law, righteousness. If you missed that episode, Dr. Kruger has been on the show now twice. Both episodes, I would say, are worth your time. So if you've missed that episode, go and check it out. Today, we're going to be looking at Romans 4, 1 through 8. And if it's okay with the two of you, I will read this passage. I would love for you to read it. JT, would you love that? Are there any big words? Okay. (laughs) Let's just go ahead and just jump right into this. Thank you. Um, (laughs) What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here we go. We jump in and we get another one of those rhetorical questions right out of the gate from the Apostle Paul. He's presuming an objection. And it's a similar objection that that he presumed in Romans 3, which is he has said some things at the end of Romans 3, and he is anticipating that the Jewish Christians might go, well, what about Abraham? right? Like, isn't Abraham super significant, right? Just Mm -hmm. like he was presuming in chapter three that they might say, well, hold on, we're circumcised. Don't we have a unique advantage? So Paul does this, we've said it, he does this over the course of the letter. He anticipates an objection and now he begins to preemptively respond to it. Keep in mind, Paul wasn't reading this letter to the church in Rome. Phoebe was, She's out there. She's reading the letter. So Paul is having to, in his writing, anticipate that having said what he just said, the audience might go, hold on a second, Abraham, question mark. And so he begins to deal with that. The church (laughs) hears this and goes, what about Abraham? So let's just pan out here and let's not presume very much, but what role did Abraham play in Israel's story? Like, why is his name being invoked here? Yeah, well, Paul's doing something similar to what we see in Hebrews, where he's like, I know, I know who you think is awesome. Let's talk about how the Lord regards him. And not only that, but the Jew would see themselves as Abraham's offspring, meaning that they had special status before the Lord. So he's going to take them to the Hebrew of Hebrews, so to speak, and point out to them the flaw in the way that they're thinking about things. Right, because if he can make his case through Abraham, mm-hmm. it's a pre, it will it will carry a significant yes. amount of weight among Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians by way of that. Right. Right, because Abraham played a really significant role in being the father, not just the forefather according to the flesh, but kind of the covenant head. Mm-hmm. right? The covenant head of God's covenant of grace. Well, yeah, they believe that they're chosen in Abraham. And so then the right. question of how Abraham is chosen becomes of vital importance because then, you know, just following out the logic, if this is the way that Abraham is saved, then it would also be the, the way of salvation for those who come after him. Right. And that's exactly what Paul does. He pulls Abraham into this conversation on justification. I mean, the next line in verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Mm -hmm. Paul is saying here, 
Abraham was not justified by works. Mm -hmm. He was justified by virtue of believing in the righteous God who gives to Abraham his righteousness. He counts his righteousness, God's righteousness, towards Abraham. Mm -hmm. So he's saying to the Jewish Christians, hey, it's not just that you aren't justified by works. It's that (laughs) Abraham wasn't justified by works. That's a big point to make. It's a big point and it'll come, it'll become an even bigger point because it will, you know, it's ultimately no one is justified by works except for one and that's Christ. And so uh, I do think it's important for those who perhaps missed our tour of Genesis to to know that this this quote, Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness, is Genesis 15. It's what is said of Abraham immediately after the promise of God in the covenant is given to him. So it's a forward-looking belief. Like God says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I'll give you land. It's the whole thing. And then it says that Abraham believed this. So he walks by faith and not by sight, right? And that faith is is the thing that is what brings him into right standing before the Lord. Yeah, it's his trust in God, God's provision, God's plan, Mm -hmm. God's character, God's righteousness. Mm -hmm. Again, this is heavily reliant. I think this passage and understanding it is heavily reliant on a multifaceted picture of righteousness. If you're viewing righteousness as just moral purity, which Mm -hmm. God has perfectly and Abraham needs desperately, Mm -hmm. then it lacks some of its punching power. Abraham Abraham's belief in God is not merely that God is better than Abraham, though that's certainly true. It's the belief that God is going to be covenantally faithful to the end. He's going to be righteous. He's going to be, uh, he's going to fulfill his promises. Uh, I think a lot of times, and we've mm-hmm. talked about this already on the podcast, but this is, I think, crucial for understanding Paul's uh, concept of righteousness in Romans is that righteousness is not merely you're bad, you're unrighteous, meaning you've disobeyed God, and now God is giving over to you the perfection of his own righteous obedience. It's like, no, he's, he's giving to you covenant faithfulness and fidelity, though you don't deserve it. And that, because that's what Abraham believes in. God's telling him, I'm going to give you a land. He's, he's telling him all the covenant promises, and Abraham takes God at his word. This is fundamentally different. Abraham's reaction in Genesis 15 is different than the other human representative who has already come before in Genesis, which is Adam. Adam does not take God Mm -hmm. at his word, does not trust God, Mm -hmm. does not believe God's words, but Abraham does, and he's righteous. Adam does not, and he's unrighteous and gives to us that unrighteous nature. And not only that, but I would imagine that the Jews had a similar problem to to, to one that we can have of uh, romanticizing the, the the people who were heroes of the faith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we find Abraham in Genesis 15 with these words spoken over him, I love that the way the story is constructed is to show us that already at that point, Abraham has demonstrated that he's a lawbreaker. You know, yeah. he, he has yeah. not been above reproach at that point in the story and he will continue to demonstrate that. And um, so I think there's a bit of a gentle reminder here, uh, that direction as well. Now, verse four, we get this interesting, it's basically like Paul gives us a word picture here. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul kind of gives us like an analogy. He's like, listen, if Abraham had worked for righteousness, if he had done something to merit righteousness, the righteousness would not be a gift. 
it would be due. It would be wages. It'd be what he deserves. And yet this righteousness, and this is, I don't think this is the first time we get the mention of gift in Romans, though it might be. But over the last, JT, and JT, I don't know how familiar you are with this or Jen, if you're familiar with this, but over the last decade, there's been a renewed interest in Paul's use of gift language in relationship to grace and salvation. JT, are you familiar with Barclay's work on this? I actually just finished it, yep. Okay, so I got to tell you as a listener, if you're looking, this is not something that I would tell you to do if you're looking to make your first step or foray into study of Romans. So please, I want you, the conversation JT and I are about to have is more one of those exploratory conversations, but I wanted to do it on this episode because in Pauline scholarship, Barclay's work on Paul and the gift has been very significant oh, yeah. for uh, the last few years. And JT, I don't want to misrepresent it, but I just give you like, if I could just maybe rattle off a little bit, and we can talk about it together. Go for it. So one of the things that Barclay has challenged the kind of understanding of when we think about Paul's conception of salvation and grace is that grace should be seen as a gift. It's important to understand that grace and gift share like a, like a Venn diagram. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, there's an overlap, even in the actual Greek words that are used, okay? And so Barclay is saying, hey, key and core to Paul's conception of grace is this idea of gift. And he says a lot of times when we read Paul's words about grace or gift in the New Testament, we think in Western terms of gift giving and gift receiving, which has a huge emphasis on the unconditional nature of gift giving or gift receiving. But he suggests that maybe we have unhelpfully imported conceptions of gift and grace that would not have been would not have correlated with how the ancient Near East and does not currently correlate with how much of the Eastern world thinks about grace and gift, meaning unmerited grace would be different than unconditional grace. And that a unmerited gift would be different than an unconditional gift. And the way that he distinguishes here, and again, I'm giving you like a hatchet job version of one of the most significant New Testament monographs in the last 10 years. So I just want to be really clear. If you're like, if you're familiar with this work and you're going, well, Kyle, you know, you're forgetting appendices C. I'm leaving it out, okay? Um, (laughs) But the idea here is that unmerited would be you could not earn it. You couldn't earn it. It's undeserved. Or Barclay will say it's incongruent. Yeah. It's incongruent, meaning it, it doesn't line up with the with what you have done. It's disproportionate, right? Mm-hmm. And that we should understand grace and gift as not unconditional is maybe not the right word, because once we have received this grace that we do not deserve and we cannot earn, it is supposed to have an impact on us to where having, uh, the way I the way I tried to tee it up for our church when I was explaining this is that it was this, it's unconditional, but it's not without hope for impact or reciprocity. Reciprocity, I think is the key there. That was what I, my biggest takeaway from the book yeah. is that a gift giver in this context would assume some sense of, some sense of reciprocity from the one who's receiving the gift. And even that reciprocal response response or impact is also going to be incongruent. He's in no way saying there's therefore a payback or you're trying to demonstrate that you've been a good investment based upon what God has given you, but that there would be a sense of 
oh my goodness, look at this gift that I have received. I am now involved in a reciprocal relationship with this covenant-keeping God, which, which should mean that has an impact on the way that I'm living in light of who this God is. Exactly. It's like God, uh, God, uh, he gives us grace so that we can give ourselves back to God. That's right. He does it in an incongruent way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Like he gives us righteousness that we cannot earn in order that we may then live righteously. That's right. (laughs) So I think this is actually really, really helpful because it does get at some of the tension points even in Paul's theology and in the letter to the church in Rome. And I think Paul's trying to address them. You see this tension even between Romans 5 and 6. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul's not saying grace isn't enough to cover our future sins. He's saying if you have received grace, the hope and the intention of now living in it is that you'll give yourself back to God in righteousness, right? That's right. Yeah. I, there's two passages that come to my mind when I think about this. And Barclay spent some time looking at these as well. The first is Galatians chapter three, where Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and basically asking the same question, and but, but responding to it a bit differently, which might be helpful for us here. He says in Galatians chapter three, verse three, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he's asking the question, you've begun with this gift of grace, which has come to you through Jesus. You've been, you've begun by the spirit, but you're now saying, well, you actually also need to be participating in works of the law, flesh, specifically circumcision here. And he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in the vein, in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, this is our passage from Genesis uh, 15 verse six, I believe, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith and I think that's where he's expecting some of this reciprocity yeah. who are demonstrating themselves to be sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Every time I read that verse, my mind blows up a little bit. <laughs> that the gospel yeah. was preached beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations should be blessed. So then it is those who are of faith, they are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, and the other passage I want to bring, I want to be sensitive to our time here. And Jen, this is a question for you. Uh, I did not do any study on this. So this is, I just wonder, you, you make so many good connections between passages. When I first read Romans chapter six, or sorry, Romans chapter four, verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Can you guys guess what other passage came to my mind? Mm-mm. Matthew, gosh, what is it? Chapter 20, the parable of the, the parable. workers oh, in the yeah. vineyard. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Do you yeah. see any parallels there? Oh, Absolutely. Try to tease some of them out if you think you can. So, I mean, remind people, what is the parable of the workers in the vineyard? These guys have been contracted to work all day. They're going to get a denarius throughout throughout the day. What happens? Yeah. So they come at various times during the day. And then at the end of the day, they all are paid the same wage, even the ones who worked a full day. And so there's a lot of anger about that. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing because he's preparing the hearts of of his listeners for um, the welcoming into the family of God of the Gentiles who are latecomers to God's goodness. Um, but the the reality hiding behind that parable is that the denarius is what was required 
um, for daily bread. It was what fed a laborer's family for a day. And so if the one who waited faithfully all day long to be called into, I mean, you think about day laborers even mm-hmm. now, you can pick some someone up to do work for you at 8 a.m., um, but there are still people who are sitting there eager to work uh, at, at five, you know, and if you pick them up and they labor for you, um, they're not going to be paid for the hours that they waited. Um, yep. But but you pay them, you you could pay them a fair wage that supports them for the day to honor, um, you know, the, the work that they've done. So Jesus uses the parable just to say, why would daily bread be withheld from the latecomer uh, just because he's a latecomer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, JT, I had never considered that connection, but you're right though. Now that we're hearing about, I wonder if that, that story is in Paul's mind, even in the phrasing of this, because I think it's a great picture of that incongruent grace. Yes, exactly. Yes. This, this, in, in gift, I mean, if you've worked an mm-hmm. hour or 20 hours, 10 hours, mm-hmm. whatever less than your mm-hmm. colleagues, but you're giving the same amount, the first thing you would do is say, that was a gift. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it would also tie you and bind you to the gift giver, mm-hmm. not in a way where he thinks there's strings attached. He's, mm-hmm. he's not saying there's strings attached here, but the the motive now would be is the person who's offered me a gift, I'm now in a relationship with that bind, that binds me to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. I want to move on to verse six here because if it wasn't enough for Paul to invoke Abraham's name, it's almost like he's like, okay, I'm going to really double down on trying to make my case here. And he brings in another name. It says in verse six, just as David, uh uh-oh, here we go. Now we got David (laughs) in the mix. It's like, I mean, just think about that though. Like invoking Abraham is invoking Israel's covenant head. Invoking Mm -hmm. David is invoking like the king Mm -hmm. who gave them the land, Mm -hmm. you know, or basically gave them the, uh, the, the presence of God that helped them start to move forward as settlers in this land. I mean, to drop David's name here next to Abraham, the only one that's missing would be a trifecta here, uh, would be Moses. And if you were going for the big four, Elijah, like Mm -hmm. if you had those four in the mix, these are two of the four on Israel's Mount Rushmore, in my view. And to put David in here is to say, like, listen, 
not only was this something that Abraham received, it was something that David saw. He talks about it here. He says about the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So in many ways, Paul gives us a picture here of some of the nuts and bolts of righteousness from the perspective of David. I mean, basically here, Paul says, to be righteous is to be blessed. Mm -hmm. To be blessed is to have one's lawless deeds forgiven, sins covered, and that the Lord will not count your sin against you. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of connections made really quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, again, we should we should see those indented um, verses and go, where is that from? Because this is one of the, the instances where Paul is quoting from the Psalms that's particularly interesting to me, because when you turn to Psalm 32, which is what he's pulling from, you find that the portion that he's quoted breaks off in the middle of a phrase. And so that's like, that would be like if I um, uh, quoted... Um, you know, like half of the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I would be indicating that I expected that you knew the whole sentence in saying mm-hmm. that. And so um, if you look at Psalm 32, um, what he's quoting from, it, it, it's verse one and two. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So his you know, his memory is serving him really well, right? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So that's basically where Paul stops quoting, but here's the end of the phrase. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Yeah. You know, and you're like, wait, what does that mean? Wait, are we talking about Christ? But no, what he's saying is, and look, in verse three carries it out, and he's expecting that they would know the next verses. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then here we find out what he's not to be deceitful about. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did mm. not cover my iniquity. Mm-hmm. I said, I would confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So this is a prayer of confession. Like it's it's yeah. about repentance before the Lord. It's not, because you tend to read it just the way it's here and you're like, oh yes, Lord, that's a blessed person who's described by that. But what he's really implying here is that we're blessed because when we confess, um, God's great gift of mercy is there for us, that the righteousness yep. from God stands waiting for us. Um, so he's not calling David out in this instance as an example of, of lawfulness. He's actually yep. pointing to him as an example of lawlessness and restoration. Yeah, that is absolutely crucial for understanding this. Uh you know, and I think one of the things that Paul has that's implicit here is that by nature, we are not blessed. Mm-hmm. By nature, we are cursed. cursed. I mean, that's what he mm-hmm. said in Romans 3. By nature, we are under sin. We are cursed. We are unrighteousness. And yet by grace, by the work of God's great gift, we are. We can be blessed. We can we can live the blessed life of mm-hmm. one whose uh, lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, against whom the Lord will not count as sin. This reminded me of Psalm 130. Um, oh Lord, uh, if you would mark iniquities, who mm-hmm. could stand? Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that perspective of the Lord is not keeping count of the sins of his righteous people. 
which is again a part of the message of justification is not and paul's he's going to get into this explicitly in five and six but he's already building his argument here which is this the good news of justification is not god as a divine etcher sketch Mm -hmm. He doesn't just like look at your mess on the tablet and just shake it up and forget it so mm -hmm. you can create a new one. Mm -hmm. It's that he paints the picture of Christ's righteousness over your life and you can't do anything to deface it. Mm -hmm. That like you can't, he's not going to count it. It doesn't matter what you do any longer. It will have consequence, but what it won't do is it will not undermine the righteousness that you've been given in mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's a much stronger view of forgiveness and justification than just, yeah, you know, God is going to look past your brokenness. Don't yeah. mess up again, though. It's that God's not going to count your sin. This points back a little to our conversation we had when we were in uh, Romans 3, this question of, you know, living in the fear of the Lord. Um, and, and if we're going to remember God's faithfulness, which is something we're called to do over and over again, to remember His faithfulness to us, the way that we remember his faithfulness is in relation to our unfaithfulness, mm -hmm. which means that though God does not count our sins against us, there is something good in us counting our sins against him. Mm -hmm. um, and in other words, you know, we, the one of the ways that we count our many blessings, count them one by one, as the psalm, as the song says, is to count our past transgressions and celebrate that even that the Lord has um, has taken care of, even that is no longer held against me. Um, and it's when we begin to forget again that enslavement that we came out of that that's when we begin to presume. So I always just like to remind Christians because I think some Christians want to say. Salvation means I don't have to think about my former sins. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, you don't have to think about them the way that you did before. You don't have to think about them as um, as a weight of guilt that lies upon you, but yeah. you should think about them with deep gratitude because they show you the high and the wide and the long and the deep of, of the love of God in Christ. That's good. That's great. It's good and a great place to land our discussion today. Listen, if you are enjoying our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, then I got to promise you, it just gets better from here, both in terms of the guest and in the passages that we get to cover. Uh, if you are looking to find the right degree, figure out financial aid and get a feel for life on campus, you should check out Boys College Preview Days. For just $25 per person, Boys College will cover your meals and up to two nights of hotel lodging. You can use the promo code KNOWINGFAITH and Boys will waive the $25 fee for the student prospect. Registration is underway now at boyscollege.com slash preview. Would really encourage you to check that out. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the symbols of salvation in the Old and New Testament as we look at Romans 4 verses 9 through 25. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.